0: Welcome, you are listening to Mullis Legal's Diversity Dialogue. Mullis Legal is the proud sponsor of the Mullis Legal Award for Diversity as part of the 2017 Property Council Ryder, Levitt, Bucknell Innovation and Excellence Awards. We are committed to supporting and promoting diversity and inclusion in the legal profession as well as within the industries with which we collaborate. This is why we are holding the Diversity Dialogue. We would also like to give a special thanks to the Property Council of Australia for their support in these podcasts. They have exceptional initiatives to support diversity and inclusion in the property industry. So go check them out at propertycouncil.com.au. Thanks for joining me today as we continue the diversity dialogue. I'm Anne Yovanovitch. I'm a senior lawyer at Mullis Legal. So far in this diversity dialogue, we've talked about many issues facing diversity and inclusion from an organisational perspective. On the show today, we're going to take a more personal approach. My special guest, Sabrina Husami Richardson, will be joining me to share her personal journey with diversity and inclusion growing up in Australia. Sabrina comes from a diverse background, not just culturally, but also with her personal and professional experiences. She was a former Miss World Australia in 2006 and was a contestant on the first Australian season of The Apprentice. She's a member of Mensa, the High IQ Society, and has been an ambassador for a countless number of charities and organisations. Sabrina has also co-authored the book, Coming of Age, Growing Up Muslim in Australia, where she shares an interesting part of her life growing up as a half-Indian, half-Lebanese Muslim girl in the western suburbs of Sydney. Sabrina currently works in state government in a senior talent acquisition capacity and sits on the steering committee for disability. So, given these many achievements in her life and her contribution to the diversity and inclusion space, it is only fitting that Sabrina comes on our show to share her interesting personal journey. Sabrina, welcome. Thank you for joining me today to discuss your personal experience on diversity I know that you've addressed some of the topics that, you know, we'll be talking about previously in the media many times. But, you know, I think it's important that, you know, we keep talking about diversity because it's always going to be relevant. Before we begin today's theme, I'm interested to know what are your top three diversity issues that you care about? Thanks Anne, and thanks so much for having me. I
1: think probably the three things most important to me in terms of diversity issues are those of gender, disability and cultural diversity. Gender because it's still prevalent in today's modern world, which it really shouldn't be. Disability because it's largely ignored and cultural diversity because it's probably the hottest topic in a cultural melting pot country like
0: Australia is. Why disability? You've, you've mentioned that uh, it is largely ignored. What have been your experiences? I
1: am uh, disabled. I have a hearing impairment which means that I'm partially deaf in both ears and I'll be hearing aids to correct that. I know other people in my family who are mentally disabled and so watching how people's stereotypes and preconceptions affect the way they treat you once they find out you have a disability can be really disarming Mm -hmm. Um, and those stereotypes can go both ways either they think you're incompetent or they think you're inspiring because you've managed to achieve so much and I put this in quotation marks despite your disability mm-hmm. uh, I think the more that we can do to make people aware of the fact that it isn't uh, a limitation as much as it is just a different bodily capacity or a different mental capacity mm-hmm. then the more acceptable and understandable it is to people that don't experience it
0: so you have been um, in a variety of workplaces now So, my question now touches on your career in talent acquisition, HR, and recruitment. You've seen some places that have supported and embraced diversity and inclusion. How would you compare a place that does that in comparison to one that actually doesn't care about it? Great question, Anne. There was a survey
1: done a few years ago by, I think it was by CEB, the Corporate Executive Board and they discovered that companies that had a diversity inclusion policy made something like close to double the profits of companies that didn't and they put it down to the fact that the more diverse your staff base the more perspectives you have in the workforce and therefore the more ways of tackling problems and coming up with new and innovative solutions Mm -hmm. so we're talking diversity inclusion isn't just good for our social and cultural atmosphere it's also actually affecting the bottom line of businesses and making them profit more so there's literally no reason for companies not to do it does it involve a bit of groundwork to begin with and actually putting in whatever policies that we need to initially and then implementing those policies yeah absolutely are you going to profit as a result both socially and also economically yes you are and do you think it also has an impact on for instance staff retention i would say yes I think if I walked into a company that made me feel less for being Muslim, Lebanese, Indian, disabled, a woman, why the hell would I stay, you know, two months later I'd be out that door and I'm sure that's true for most people.
0: Mm. Do you find that um, looking at an organisation that didn't really care? about, I mean, I mean, whether from your personal experiences or you've seen with other people, um, how was that affected in that respect for those type of companies that didn't care about diversity? Um, did you think that their innovation, creativity or morale, staff morale was, you know, quite adversely affected?
1: Yeah, there were a couple of businesses that I've raised with in the past that didn't really have those policies in place. And we did see more churn, so less retention of staff and you did also see a lot more i'm going to say dictating from management and that could come down to that lack of diversity in terms of the perspectives that the staff base if they're just hiring people that are like them and therefore think like them and have the same life experience as then they're not going to get anyone pushing back and saying actually i think there's a different way that we can do this so i guess it was just um you know i guess a sheep following the leader kind of exercise which resulted in no pushback, no no diverging of pathways, no new ways of doing things.
0: When you come across a situation where you have someone who's your supervisor, for example, or someone who's in charge of you know, making a decision on the candidate, how do you address unconscious bias? Whether it's your client or your um, manager or supervisor, and they're the ones that are sort of displaying a behaviour that's... Exhibiting unconscious bias, and you're trying to steer clear of that.
1: I think you have to have the confidence to challenge them. So, there's this element of fairness that we sometimes forget. Sometimes we overcompensate for being too, too fair and too scared to talk about why it is that a particular demographic may not fit. Um, and, and so if a hiring manager gives me a really good reason as to why for the culture fit of the team, let's say, look, it's a group of women, I'm finding that there's a lot of gossiping and backbiting going on, it would be really nice to break that up by bringing in either a completely different personality type or a male who's less inclined to doing that kind of thing. And we are stereotyping in that hiring manager saying so, but there's still logic there. So I might say, okay, I'll consider that in my recruitment process, right? if they say to me something along the lines of what i mentioned before well i just think that this is such an important role that we can't really lose someone to mat leave i just had the last woman in this role go off on that leave and i don't want it to happen again i feel like do you realize that like they are saying it's basically legal grounds for discrimination and you just need to can it that is the wrong way of thinking this is why it's wrong and this is how we need to start looking at it moving forward
0: Yeah, I always found that whole process quite interesting because, you know, when you – and this, again, draws from, I guess, my own experiences, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there would share a similar sentiment, but, you know, we – or as a female, for example, you know, we go in and, you know, if we're out in the job market and we're looking for a job and we go through a recruitment process and we feel like, you know, we've done really well in the interview, for example, and we seem like such a good fit for the role, but then we don't get it. And then just wondering what happens in the background, if there was that unconscious bias that played into effect. And, uh, but you know what, it's just, it's great to see your insights on it because it's something that, People out there in the public or people who are, you know, job seekers, for example, that's something they will never know. From what you've seen in a workplace environment, what sort of progress do you think has been made for workplace diversity?
1: Incredible progress.
0: Diversity
1: policies actually exist now. There never used to be such a thing as a diversity inclusion policy. We see things like in recruitment, you've got to have women sitting on the panel. You've got to have women in the shortlist of candidates to interview. So there's that gender balance that never used to exist before and an onus on that gender balance. Uh, We see support for Indigenous Australians, and if you are flagged as an Indigenous or Torres Islander, you're going to get a better chance than you ever have done in the past. Uh, You see things like disability inclusion, which we spoke about before, actually identifying and then adapting for disabilities within the workplace. And then you see things like parental support. You know, there used to be, once upon a time, a complete misconception around women and their ability to perform their careers because at some point, that girl's gonna go get pregnant, she's gonna have to take a year off and whatever it is. Nowadays, in the workplace, not only are there support mechanisms in place, but it's considered so normal and so acceptable and and you just you can go away and have your child without fear that your career will be destroyed as a result or that you'll always be pitched as lower management or you know just not not at that high level of leadership that you could be
0: i am interested to know though growing up um you know being in the public eye as a muslim woman especially in the media there must have involved you facing stereotypes and misconceptions and we see that constantly still in the media. What did you face as a common misunderstanding um, about being a Muslim woman in Australia?
1: There were so many misunderstandings about being Muslim in Australia. Um, I was the only Muslim to represent Australia at this world. I was also the only member of MENSA, the High IQ Society, to represent Australia at this world. But I'm going to let you guess as to which the media always wanted to talk about, right? There was this huge onus placed on the fact that, but you're Muslim, how can you be a beauty pageant? Doesn't that conflict with what you've been taught and brought up within? And I was always like, well, actually two directions. Either no comment, and they'd still choose to write about it anyway, mm. or I, it never conflicted for me. I was brought up as a very liberal, non-practicing Muslim, and like many liberal, non-practicing Christians or Buddhists or people from other religions in this country, there is no conflict.
0: There must be that stereotype where they think, you know, you're a Muslim woman, why isn't she covered up? You know, that was probably a very common one that you you know, got. And some people, even those that choose to wear, for example, the haja, people think, oh, she's oppressed, you know, or, you know, she's probably limited in her, you know, social opportunities or, you know, life purely on appearance. Yeah,
1: I, I could you know. not agree more. Um, look, I was brought up quite conservatively never really dressed in what you would call a non-conservative manner, you know, wasn't allowed to go out with boys when I was younger, the whole cultural bit. But that said, when I was older, I remember being a a proponent of modesty. I remember saying to myself, look, if I'm going to enter this pageant, I'm going to do it in my way and in my style. And I specifically remember the director of the Miss Australia pageant I'm telling you when I had come back from this world and I came third over there So it's the first I was in many many years to have actually placed in the top three She said now Sabrina, I know your focus has been on charity work But we need to start making a bit of money out of you <laughs> and Really the direction of, of pageants in general are more froth and bubbles and less dignity in charity work and elegance and all the rest of it What we need is more Paris Hilton rather than Princess Diana And I remember thinking to myself Good God! Like I, I can't win, you know. For, for this woman, I'm too conservative. I'm too focused on my charity work. In the Muslim community, I'm too liberal. You know, I'm wearing a swimsuit on the world stage. Oh my gosh, She's such a boundary pusher. So yeah, there those misconceptions are always going to exist. Yeah. There's nothing much that you can do, I think, to please
0: either side. I was going to say, thank God you did not go down the Paris Hilton road <laughs> <laughs> We've got enough of that in this world, well, don't we? Okay, so let's go back to your personal experiences um i want to know more about your personal experience growing up in australia with uh, in particular gender equality so the experiences that you went through in high school to you know participating in this world and being in the public eye
1: yeah, and I'm really lucky. I was born to a Lebanese Muslim man and a Hindu Indian woman who was surrounded by strong women in their own experiences. My father's mother had come to Australia as the first kidney transplant uh, operation patient, and this was after her husband had died of a heart attack, and she came over here with six kids and made it on her own. My mother's mother, uh, who was Muslim, married her husband, who was Hindu, during the partition between India and Pakistan. So, again, pushing boundaries, going against the, the cultural elements at the time, and, and huge bias that were happening. Um, so, mum and dad both saw female empowerment, I guess, and women's liberation from a very early age themselves through their own mothers. And they brought myself and my sister up to be exactly the same. Always believe that you can do anything just because you're a woman. It doesn't mean that you can't achieve, which was fantastic. What I did see, though, as I sort of made my way through high school and then to Miss World was this constant stereotyping of women. And I mean, we've all heard it. Women are expected to do it all. Or they're nothing right so either you're amazing in the workplace you're an amazing mother you want to be a mother so god forbid if you don't want to have children to begin with um you know you're going to be a perfect wife and domestic housekeeper and and you're going to be such a social butterfly as well and this is of course in the western australian world that i'm talking about this but i think that expectation that's placed on us to to be super women all the time is an element of putting women on a pedestal And I don't know why men aren't put on the same pedestal and the same expectations aren't placed on them, but it certainly makes, I think, gender equality much harder to reach. And certainly we're we're aware that the glass ceiling is still a very bleak reality in Australia. I think it's something like... 15% 15% of CEOs are women in this country, and we're in 2017, it's, it's an absolute joke.
0: I'm interested to know who or what was the biggest influence in your life in relation to ch- shaping your current views on certain diversity topics, such as marriage equality or gender equality? Definitely my
1: mum. I think most people would give that answer, but it's true in my case. My mum, as I mentioned before, was born to parents who had rebelled against the Pakistan and India riots that were happening at the time, just so that they could get married. And and it was a love marriage, not an arranged marriage, as was very common in India at the time. Um, She was brought up herself to be an incredibly strong, confident woman, and was considered a boundary pusher back in her day she used to have male friends which was unheard of she played sports she was part of um, the army cadetship so she she was really going against those Indian stereotypes of I guess the docile servile woman who's in the home and looks after the children and that kind of thing um, and I reckon that's why that my dad was attracted to her <laughs> to be honest um, but yeah she moved to Australia like she married a Lebanese Muslim man moved to Australia. There was no social circle here for her to lean on. She couldn't speak proper English. She was just incredibly brave and made the move despite that lack of support. And growing up, always told me, never let anyone dictate to you what you can and cannot do. Always remember who you are. Don't succumb to those passing trends and phases. You know what your integrity is and where your values lie and don't don't fear away for that for any reason, and yeah, she informs me greatly as a result. Thanks, (laughs) Mum!
0: Speaking of your cultural background, you co-authored a book that delves into this further. Talk us through this book and what you wrote about, and also why it received all this media attention at the time of its release.
1: The book was called coming of age growing up muslim in australia and it's published by alan and unwin a few years back basically co-authored by 12 australian muslims from very diverse backgrounds everything from a female boxer to a lesbian to a psychologist myself as Miss world contestant etc and my chapter was called mishmash muslim because i've always been that an amalgamation of modern and conservative and you know everything that i could bring out of australian culture and everything i could bring out of my muslim upbringing i kind of mashed together the book i guess is is designed to break down common stereotypes of what it is to be a muslim especially in this country um and it was put on Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministerial reading list because Ooh. it was considered so important for him to understand particularly with the tensions that have always existed between of uh, the political and the Muslim community, what we're actually about and how diverse we actually are. I think it received the media attention it did because we haven't in the past been given uh, a forum for non-extremist Muslims to talk about their experiences. You'll notice it is almost always people with the stereotypical long beards and and the muftis and and wearing burqas and things like that that is shown in the media, rather than this melting pot of very liberal, very Australianised Muslims who have different ways of living.
0: Mm -hmm. Go read the book everyone, it's great. I've read it myself. (laughs) Do you think that we have evolved or improved as a multicultural country, you know, that is more open and accepting of different ethnicities and religions and cultures?
1: Have we improved? Yes. I think there are more interracial relationships, for example, than we've seen at any other time in the past. But have we evolved enough to, to the point that we should be? Absolutely not. I think there's still so much racial and religious stereotyping that goes on in this country. Um, the media has a habit of always branding what is different as other and making a really strong point of, let's say, a Middle Eastern man was involved in a shooting today in Lekimba, as opposed to when an Anglo-Saxon male is involved in a shooting. You never, they'll never use the word white or Anglo-Saxon. It's just blacked out of the media. So I think that 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 media treatment of what is different, uh, that the more that it stops, the more evolved we'll get because we digest most of that information and form most of our opinions from what the media tells us.
0: That's so true. Um, and S- Sabrina, you were in The Apprentice, the first season in Australia, and I remember watching that show and I remember thinking, you know what, they've got a really diverse range of contestants on that show with different backgrounds you know, you included. Um, How did you find that whole experience being in a room and doing all those different corporate challenges with people, you know, such diverse people?
1: I loved it. Uh, The actual filming of The Apprentice and going through those challenges with that group was amazing. What wasn't amazing was the editing that happened after the fact where we were all stereotyped in our own little ways. So, you know, there was the working mother, Or the beauty queen or the down-to-earth Italian boy you know so we all became caricatures essentially and that was shocking for many of us because we'd see video footage literally chopped and edited sometimes from three different days and put together as if we were forming uh, one conversation around one thing and literally their sentences pulled from different conversation so it was shocking. As so many of us I remember calling each other up and going, what the hell just happened? Did you see what they just did to me on screen? You know, it was really confronting. But as far as the actual experience, I mean we were lucky, Mark Boris, who was the, the Donald Trump so to speak, um, the leader is well, a Greek Australian by background. There was such a diverse range of people participating as contestants, and the challenges themselves were so different in nature that I think it was a very fair process, except for that bloody editing that happened <laughs> the after magic The magic of editing, right?
0: It. Do you think that because everyone was so diverse that they all brought something mm-hmm. to each team and it was a benefit to have? such a diversity
1: I would say so firstly from just from a viewers point of view if you have 12 totally different people competing you have more chances of being able to relate to one of them and go that person reminds me of myself Mm. and then from the contestants point of view as I said because the challenges were so diverse in their nature if you do come from a different corporate background a non-corporate background you're self-employed you are working mother etc etc you've just got more chance of being able to blitz at least one of those challenges and bring a different perspective in. And I remember in those team challenges how, how different our opinions often were and how much we were able to challenge but also learn from each other as a result.
0: That's that's the thing that you touch on that I notice is so prevalent in the media is stereotyping. We see that in TV shows, reality TV shows. In my view, I don't really see there being that much diversity in certain shows. And you know what comes to mind? You know, don't judge me. The The Bachelor. (laughs) 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 No judgment. I love The Bachelor. Please continue. There's, there's the thing I say as a writing joke, and I say it because you know I'm Asian, but. You know, obviously there's a token Asian in it and, you know, they only cast one person who's who's of that token ethnicity and everyone else is, you know, predominantly Anglo-Saxon and Caucasian. And I think that is actually a general reflection of the fact that it's interesting, but the media, you know, journalists, even newsreaders that we see on mainstream channels don't really appear to be diverse, you know.
1: So true. I think it was just this year, 2017, on Australia Day in Melbourne, there was a big billboard campaign for the Australia Day celebrations in Melbourne that had two girls in a hijab as the two characters in this campaign. And there was huge backlash against that from the Australian community saying, that's not representative of Australia. But do you ever hear that when, as you say in The Bachelor, 19 out of your 20 contestants are white Caucasian? No, you don't. If we had 19 out of 20 as Indigenous Australians who were local and native to this country, would people say, that's not Australian? I just questioned, you know, again, where this ignorance comes from and why the media always panders to that ignorance rather than challenging it. I thought that campaign was brilliant. They are Australian. It's a different way of looking at what Australian is. Good on them, right? But again, they just receive such negativity. Another good example would be when I was Miss Australia. As I said, most of my answers to those, oh, I'm a Muslim and you are in a pageant questions, was no comment. I don't even want to discuss it. This is not part of me being Miss Australia. It has nothing to do with it. Why does it keep coming up? And I remember after one such interview, I had literally just no comment, no comment, please change the topic, let's talk about something else. The next day I was on the front page of Daily Telegraph and the headline was, Sabrina receives death threats from the Islamic community. Oh gosh. And it, it went on to quote me in the article as saying that I had received those death threats. So you can just imagine being used as a scapegoat against your own community. When not only did that never happen, But I literally didn't even make any comments at all on the topic, and the media is still choosing to write a story to fabricate an imagined event in order to push a certain agenda and get those readers. It's just
0: horrible it's media sensationalizing sabrina thank you so much for sharing your stories and views with us today it was truly enjoyable listening to your personal journey and particularly to with what you did and you know, what you've been through now to get to where you are today it's
1: an absolute pleasure thank you so much for the opportunity and kudos to you and rules legal for actually giving voice to this diversity dialogue i think it's fantastic
0: Thanks for tuning in and listening to this week's Diversity Dialogue with Sabrina Husami richardson That was a really interesting discussion I had with Sabrina. It's impressive and inspiring to see what she has accomplished in her position, especially in dealing with immediate scrutiny surrounding her early career and breaking down the stereotypes of what it means to be an Australian Muslim woman. One major aspect of this podcast that I took away from my discussion with Sabrina was the lasting impact and influence which her upbringing had in shaping her views on the many diversity issues that we discussed. More importantly having strong women in her life has played a key role in how she has tackled diversity in the three areas that matter to her being culture, gender and disability. So the important message I would say for our listeners here is that the conversation around diversity and inclusion starts at home. Links to anything that we've talked about or referred to in this podcast will be on our website at mooluslegal.com slash diversity. Also, please like and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just search Moolus Next week, we'll be talking to Alicia Gleeson of Crown Resorts about the future outlook of diversity in Australia. My wonderful colleague Alistair Bridges will be hosting that podcast, so stay tuned next week for this interesting discussion.